three, two, one, roll the footage. Welcome back, everybody, to the Strategy Sprints podcast. I'm your host, Simon Severino. What if you could hang out with sprinters and ask them about their problems, their workflows, and their solutions? That's exactly what we do here at Strategy Sprints podcast every day. And today we explore with the inventor of the grill gun how we can tap into the power of the Dream 100, how we can grow our business via influencers. Welcome, everybody. Bob Healy. Hey, Simon. How are you doing? So cool to have you here, Bob. We are excited. And what are you currently creating? Well, right now, I'm just creating the business that's going to be able to uh, sell all of these grill guns and sous vide guns that I've made. So it's really tough going from a, a concept to a, a prototype and then to actually production. You know, the entire notion of a bootstrap startup is not something that the average entrepreneur really has the stomach for, let alone the, the capacity to make it happen. So it it's, um, I'm in the, the business building phase of the, of the company, not so much the product development, marketing it, selling it, and uh, making sure that I have the team in place in all aspects that will make it successful. Wow, so you have built a product that is actually needed, it's working really well, and now it's about scaling it beautiful. Tell us about the first part. How did you validate the concept? How did you test quickly? Um, how did you do that? Well, it's so everybody thinks that they have the and whenever you're an inventor, you think you have the best idea and everybody's going to want it. And you really have to determine somehow whether or not that's actually true. And so there, there are lots of processes that I went through. First, I designed it, had a prototype, and I started showing it to people and getting their feedback, the, the direct feedback. And then I had to see if I could make it um, something that an investor would want to invest in. And honestly, if, um, if you're looking at our, my products, which is a grill gun or a variation of it called the sous vide gun, and what that is is it's a, it's a torch that looks like a gun, but it shoots fire. So it's really the true definition of a firearm. A, um, if, you, if you look at something like that and from an investment standpoint, they kind of step back. If this was a dot-com or a pharmaceutical or uh, something that had a lot of a lot of historical precedent, then it would be it'd be easy to get money for something like that. But with this, it was it wasn't that way at all. It's it's politically incorrect for one, and um, and it sells a huge amount of it on emotion. I mean, because you don't have to have something like this, but it's the best way to to actually accomplish what it is you're trying to do. And so the conversation between me and an investor was something like this. I'd, I'd show him the, the product and he'd say, man, that's amazing. I'd like to have one. And then when I would ask him to invest in it, he would say, um, well, who would buy one? I mean, so, think about that conversation here real quickly, because you've got somebody who's saying I'd buy one. And then they turn around and say, who would buy one? So it's, what he's really, a, a savvy investor, really is is looking for market validation, some reason to have some, some expectation that he's just not throwing good money away after bad because 
after all, most ideas really aren't ever going to come to fruition. So they have to have some scale to be able to measure things against. So uh, I had to validate it and I had to get the financing for it. And the best ways to do that uh, were unconventional. I ended up going the crowdfunding route, uh, which truly validated the product as well as sold that there was a said that there was a market for it. So it was it was easy to get money after that. One step and, back, once before the crowdfunding, I'm super curious. The first prototype that you showed to one person, because many people right now here listening are thinking, hey, I need to get that API right, I need to get that feature right, and then I will show it. So how much was it working? How much was it mature? the prototype, the first time that you showed it? Was it just a, a drawing of a gun or was it really shooting fire already? Uh, well, uh, Simone, my background is engineering as well as business uh, management. And so I knew that somebody actually had to hold it in their hands. They had to be able to touch and feel it in order to get the, the concept, in order to be able to emotionally accept it. So although I've always hired engineers to design things for me in, in different capacities I've had, I was the engineer now. I mean, I, I said, okay, well, put your money where your mouth is, Bob, you know, design it. So I actually created the prototypes. I, I bought a um, 3D printer and I bought 3D development software. And I, it was, it's an amazing thing going from the concept because I didn't know it was a grill gun when I started. I just knew it was a tool to light a fire that people would want to buy. Because my history, my personal history is I like to barbecue. I like to grill outdoors. I like to sear my meat. I like to do that sort of stuff. And there was not a grill gun available for me to do that with at the time. So I had to come up with the idea and then actually had to make it. And that way people could actually experience it. So I had about nine prototypes that I made. I uh, went through the process of finding somebody who did rapid prototyping of the models that I had in order to have finished looking goods that I could work with and, and give to influencers and give to investors so that they could actually, with confidence, say that this is a real thing. And what, you're, what we're really going to do here is sell a real product because the notion of trying to get money before you have a product, I mean, before you have a production product is really kind of hard to do. It's easy if you've got a production product and you know what it costs and everything's all ironed out to, uh, to explain the story and what the costs are. But when it's all still just in your mind is how you're going to make it work, it's, it's really pretty challenging. And so I had to make prototypes of it and I had to, had to actually let people use it. In fact, um, the in the influencer model of uh, using of selling or selling the idea to people in order to run a successful Kickstarter campaign was done with uh, prototypes. I mean, all of the videos, the early videos back in 20, let's see, what was it, 19, uh, the spring of 2019, they were prototypes that I'd made. And I understood the cost of it well enough to be able to uh, be able to say to not only people who would buy it, but to the influencers, what it costs and uh, what I would run a Kickstarter campaign on in order to be able to get the financing. I had I had to ultimately take the Kickstarter route, uh, crowdfunding route, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, in order to be able to get the capital that it took to actually develop the product. Because I just 
as cool as it was, I couldn't get investment capital to see it my way. So first part, rapid prototyping, quickly with the 3D printer, how quick, how cheap can I build something that is like the product? And then the second part was crowdfunding. Some people think crowdfunding is at the very beginning of the stage. And uh, my experience is it's the it's really the last part of the validation stage, of the product stage, because it needs already to be kind of validated if you want a lot of people to chip in. What was your experience? Um, so it was in, 20, in February of 2019 that I said, if I'm going to get the capital that I have to have to make this, I have to go Kickstarter. So that was a word that I was new to. I was not... Uh, in any way invested in um, crowdfunding, never done it before, never, never paid any attention to crowdfunding. So in March, April and May of 2019, in three months, um, I learned about crowdfunding. I actually, um, this is something that a good takeaway for your listeners. And that is, is what you're uh, kind of a lead on to what you're saying, Simon, 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 sorry, Simon, is that where you go? Uh, All right. Sorry. Um, Simon, the, the way that um, you have to run a successful crowdfunding funding campaign is you have to have a product concept that's mature enough to let people have some concept of if they're, gonna, if they're going to uh, give you their money, because that's what crowdfunding is. They're not buying anything. They're going to give you their money so that you can develop your idea. And so it's got to be compelling. You've got some 40 million people out there that are... Um, interested in crowdfunding. They just think things are cool. But that means that at any one time, there's 4,000 some crowdfunding projects that are available any single day. And so you've, you've got to do something that's going to drive your project in front of the people. And so how do you do that? Well, you can read books on it, you can go through and, and or, or you can do what I did, is you can study successful campaigns. I mean, study them intensively where you understand every aspect of their presentation, how they approach the audience. Um, you, you can call the people if you can reach them that ran the campaign and ask them the questions. But the best thing to do is, is to see why it is that they were successful and to, and to write that all down. Co- comb through the most successful campaigns and understand how they did what they did. And so that's Let what me I give you one, one example from last week, which is really to the point of what you're saying. I am in a mastermind with the founder of Atari. So this person invented video gaming. He gave Steve Jobs his first job in his company. Very young, the very young Steve Jobs. So you can imagine this guy has all the knowledge and all the the best starting position to start a crowdfunding campaign. So what he did is there was a game out there that he believed in. The concept was amazing. He sent to all our mastermind colleagues the link. Hey, here's my crowdfunding campaign. Will you go there? I go there. I love the the game immediately the concept i immediately click yes and while i'm clicking it says the campaign is over it didn't get enough funds so even the best people the best concept it's highly likely that it doesn't work so what was it that worked in your case so you're exactly right that 
most of them don't work. In fact, um, 80% of all crowdfund campaigns uh, end without having been uh, having made their goal. And so you have to have a goal that's makeable and you have to understand how to make that goal that's makeable and what that goal has to be. And then you have to know, I mean, I'm a numbers guy. And so you have to know where all of the, the buyers are going to come from. And there, and you just don't have enough aunts and uncles and grandmas, right? And, and best friends to go out and buy your product to make you successful. You have to, you have to understand the market. And, and, and so in the, in the case of the grill gun, what I did was I, I first said, all right, who are my buyers? How are, how am I going to approach them? And so simultaneously, while I was trying to figure out Kickstarter, I launched, I, I started selling grill guns online. I mean, just started selling them just to see whether or not people would actually buy them. Now I didn't take anybody's money. I just had it available for sale. I built a website, had it available for sale, and I was able to track how many people who would go and read about it and decide that they like it and would actually then put their money where their mouth is by using their credit card, who would actually buy it. And it took me, I, had, I ran that campaign for about two weeks and I was able to, with that, I was able to see the velocity of people. I could understand the percentage of people who said that they would buy one, I mean, follow my, my campaign and go there and then spend the money. So you could see who's coming in to the website and you can see what the conversion rate is. And so you now understand how many people at what the price is going to be, you have to have in order to be able to have the necessary conversion for a sale. And so mathematically, I found out that um, it would be 2%, 2% of the people who actually saw it were going to buy it. And, and I also found out that uh, if I could promote it properly, that I could actually bump that up to a 4% convert, conversion if that was, uh, if it's done well. So and then, then test, it's just a math equation. Did you test full price, 100% or 75% or even less? Say that again. Did you test with the full price, 100% or 75% or even less? Oh, I, well, at the time, I, I, um, I put it out at a discounted price in order to be able to understand. Because in Kickstarter, a person needs to feel like they're getting something that they can't get for retail. I mean, if you, if you run a Kickstarter campaign and you're selling a game or a product or something like that, and then after you fund it, you can go buy it in retail for a cheaper price than what you were selling it for, or what you purchased on Kickstarter, you're not going to be happy. And, and, and Kickstarter or Indiegogo is really a, a, um, a, a platform that people share their thoughts about. It's, it's a review sort of platform. And so I had to actually be trying to sell it at a price that I thought I could make work on Kickstarter in order to be able, the notion behind Kickstarter was to get the capital that I needed because I could then build the infrastructure that would take to actually make the product, ship it to me and then distribute it to everybody that is going out there. So I'm sort of taking a rabbit trail. It didn't mean to so much. You had the website that I was selling it on, my website that I started building and selling it on 
was selling it at a price that I felt was a Kickstarter price. And that's what I was able to see. And so, because that's what I was really interested in is, is if I sold it at this price on Kickstarter, would I be able to, how, how many people would have to actually see it in order to be able to um, be successful with it? So once I knew what that ratio was, then I knew how many people I actually had to have confirmed would actually buy it. And that was a huge number. I mean, we're talking thousands of people and where was I going to find thousands of people? And so I, my product is, again, um, it's a grill gun. It, it looks like a semi-automatic pistol with a, a long barrel on it. And uh, it's, a, it's a fully functional, high power, 400,000 BTU torch. It's just, it makes lighting a grill a snap. And uh, explaining that and telling that to people in the form of a Kickstarter campaign is what I was going to need to do. And so I started, I, I picked gun shows, uh, the Wanamaker gun show, uh, RK gun show. I went to, to gun shows in the area that I live in and just, and just sold air again. I mean, I was, uh, people would say, that's cool. I want to buy one. And so I know it that you didn't go to grill shows, you, you went to gun shows. I think that's the smartest way and the right positioning. So I would take their name. I mean, they would be kind of disappointed because they wanted to take it home with them. But I would take their name and their number and their email. And I said, when I launch my kick, this is going to be crowdfunding. And when I launch my Kickstarter campaign, I want I'm going to send you an email or a text message and have you go. I'll, I'll tell you where it is, when it is. And you just go get it. And so I had a lot of people, I mean, just hundreds of people sign up for doing that. But I could tell still, even with hundreds of people, you know, some insignificant number of those people are actually going to follow through with what they say. So I had to derate the hundreds of people that I got to by 10% and say, those are the real people who are going to buy it. So it was not enough. And I then said, well, um, I need to keep going. I can show... Uh, influencers that it's valid and people would buy it at this price. Now that I've done the work with the gun shows, now I need to reach out to influencers and influencers or pick the category. For me, uh, it was, it was a grilling category. And so I started reaching out to people who had YouTube video shows, you know, that would, um, that I thought would, you know, would enjoy it. And so I sent them one of my prototypes you know, I had nine of them at the time and um, you know, if you figured how much I had invested in each one of them, it was several thousand dollars a grill gun by the, by the time I got it made, but I sent it to them. They ran their video. They talked about how great the product was and I could use the number of influence of people they influence and derate it again by the same numbers that I had learned by running it on my website. Mm -hmm. So I could use the the history of what I was doing in order to tell me how many people would actually buy it if they saw it on the influencer's website. And so then it was, it was really just a function of saying, okay, how many people does this guy have influence over derated by a factor of what that actually is and, and get enough influencers in, in the bank, so to speak, that before you launch a Kickstarter campaign, you must know, I mean, this is 
put this in your head and, and never forget it. You must know where your sales are going to come from. And they have to come in the first three days. If you don't make a Kickstarter campaign is really a uh, might as well just run a 30 day campaign or a 40 day as I did, because it's they're generally just sounds of crickets in between the beginning and the ending. You just don't have people that want to pay attention to it. They they jump in, they look real quick and then they sit on the sidelines and they wait to see whether or not it's going to be successful before they get in. And so you've got three days to make a buzz. And then you've got about three days where you're, the house is on fire and you're trying to figure out where they're all going to come from for the typical Kickstart campaign. And so let me, let me rewind, rewind quickly. This is so important. Many people out there who are starting a crowdfunding don't think that you just do this and it will solve all problems for you. The first three days you have first, you have to find your number, the two percent. Then you have to think about can you get it to three percent to four percent? How will you get it there? And what is it? And then the sec the next step is you have to be prepared to have the sales lined up for the first three days. This is so important. And uh, it's not just putting it up there. Yes, people want it and that's it. It will be sold. Uh, you have to prepare the sales. How did you prepare the sales? So um, I, I, I tried to make sure that I launched my kickstart campaign at the most optimal time of the year. So for a, a grill product like this, it's going to be the beginning of the summertime when everybody's getting uh, their boat out of the garage and they're taking the cover off their charcoal grill, that sort of thing. So Memorial Day was my had to make target in order to be able to run a successful Kickstarter campaign for my particular product. And so I, I lined up as many influences that, that I needed. I got them to shoot videos for me that would release on Memorial Day or in that, in that same two or three day period, either just before or just after it that I could point to in the Kickstarter campaign. I built the Kickstarter website to, to the specifications that I determined needed to be by studying successful Kickstarter campaigns. And I, I built the program and the um, the sale or the the presentation of the, the gifts, if you will. The gifts would be future grill guns if I was successful and got it crowdfunded. And had all that ready to go on uh, Memorial Day of 2019. And and I knew I knew before I went into it that it would be successful. Because this is another important part, and that is if you were to go out on Kickstarter and say, this is what you really need. I mean, the whole thing, I need this much and ask for it, it would be, it'd be impossible to get. I, I, knew, I knew I would have to have $400,000 in order to be able to bring this product into um, bring it to the market. But if I said $400,000 on the Kickstart campaign, it would never make. I mean, if people would stand back and say, there's no way he's not gonna make $400,000 with this. And so I had to determine what was my, um, what was my minimum that it would take to make that I could afford to give the money back for because I'm a person with integrity and I wouldn't just take people's money and not give them something. And so I, I said, I need to have my, my threshold was $65,000. So it's important not to, 
uh, overestimate how much it takes or underestimate it. People, that's the, that's the number one flaw people make is they don't understand what it's going to take to actually be successful with the product in the product launch. And so they ask for too little and they're always going back to the till looking for more money. And that never works. It just makes everybody unhappy. So I launched, I, I knew when I knew that I, in the first three days, I was going to be able to get $65,000 worth of sales, that it would make that for sure. Then I knew that the, the steam engine or the steamroller effect of success, it makes in three days, you're successful in three days, you're gonna make it, now it's all gravy. Everybody thinks, okay, now I can get on and I can get one because he's gonna bring it to market. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there in the wings saying, it's gotta hit 400,000, but I'm not sharing that with people because it would run them off. And I and I can afford to give back, Kickstarter takes 3% or something like that. So, it, so if I had to give everybody's money back, I'd have to give it back less 3% that I would give away to Kickstarter. So it would cost me uh, a sizable amount of money in order to make that happen. But it's a whole lot better to give back not enough money than to take what you know won't work and go to market with it. Is that too complex? I mean, I, I don't want to... I love it. And we geek out on these things. This is exactly what we love. Really, the technicalities of product launch, the risk, what you have to check. And this is this is beautiful. People... Uh, listening to this who have a crowdfunding campaign coming up soon, they have now a perfect checklist. They should re-listen re to this and really write it down. It's a perfect checklist. Right. So know where your sales are going to come from. And so I could tell that. I knew I could see all the influencers. I could see the list of people that signed up for it. I, I, sent an e I was able to uh, structure a launch where I knew in three days it was going to make. And it was, it was fascinating to watch because if you, if you follow these procedures, you can with confidence know that it's going to make. And so in three days time, I watched it roar past $65,000 and I knew it was going to be, it's able to going to be made. And if you look at the trend of the, of the grill gun, uh, grill blazer Kickstarter campaign, it, it was on a steady incline, no crickets in the middle. It, every single day, it continued to increase in the number of sales. It just gained momentum. And it continued to gain momentum through the Indiegogo campaign. So the Indiegogo, the Kickstarter campaign ended the first week of July, uh, first of July, I think it was. And then I launched an Indiegogo campaign, which was um, something that you could take any of the money that you... Uh, made on Indiegogo, you could get because you'd already made the the campaign. It was it was a way to just kind of have a retail presence for a, a a crowdfunding product, and so by the time I actually had the product in hand, made and in hand, and was able to give it to every one of the Indiegogo and Kickstarter uh, in people who bought one, I had sold. Um, $560,000 worth of them. I well passed my $400,000 mark. Um, that all happened by the 400,000 mark. I clip, I eclipsed before the campaign was over. The Kickstarter campaign was over and the, and the next 165 was just sort of gravy on top of it. But you can actually count on that. If you, if you go through and you, you actually do the homework to understand how to make a really 
successful Kickstarter campaign. And, and it's not just, the formula is not something that you can use uh, my formula for yours because your product is different, whoever is listening to this. You have to understand successful campaigns in this kind of product, product category. Study what Kickstarter does in, uh, in presenting uh, products on the first page. Remember, there's some 4,000 products available every single day for anybody who's on uh, Kickstarter, who's a Kickstarter um, junkie. And so I don't, if, if I was Kickstarter junkie and I paid attention to it all day long, I couldn't see 4,000 products. I mean, it, it, it's, it's gonna take the being on the top of the, on the first page above the fold to be successful in uh, a kickstart campaign. And so you have to drive specifically everything that it takes to make that happen. And then, uh, then it'll be successful. I love it. And I'm curious to hear who you nominate for a strategy award after one word from our sponsors. Hey, if you like the tools, go grab them for free at strategysprints.com slash tools. Everybody's zigging, this person is zigging, but from your perspective, they're doing the right thing. Who do you pick? Uh, there's another podcaster out there, a friend of mine and actually business associate. His name is Clay Clark. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's the uh, founder of the Thrive Time Show. It's one word, thrivetimeshow.com. And um, he he zigs all of the time. Everybody is zagging and he's saying, no, follow me over here. So I, you can, you can see his uh, podcast. In fact, it'd be cool, Simon, if you were to be on his show or interview him because he's just an amazing, amazing character right now. His, um, his efforts are being spent on, um, Re waking up America after all this whole COVID malaise. So um, he's having conventions across the country and getting people to pay attention to what does it take to, to actually be alive in the world today. Beautiful. And what are the three books that inspire you? Go back to 2021, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. Um, most people have read it by now that are interested in a successful company. And I did, and it, I read it in 2004, right in the beginning of my uh, executive management uh, part of my business career. And the principles taught there in that book are something that are sort of guiding principles. It's the, the notion behind the book is it's harder for a good company to become a great company than it is for a mediocre company to become a great company. And it makes sense if you, if you noodle on that for just a little bit because what happens is when you're good, you're not willing to make the radical shifts that it takes to become great because you think you can just kind of edge your way up there a little bit. Good employees are not great employees. They're employees that um, do a good job. And if you're going to be happy with a good company, well, then great. Keep your good employees. Keep your good processes. Keep your good products. If you want to be a great company, 
you have to constantly be looking at what does it take in every category of your business. And he, uh, Jim actually wrote a book with real compelling evidence about that, that I didn't have any experience in that, but I paid attention to it and, um, and it helped form my career. Uh, two other books. So this is where the conversation could actually take a, a different tack because what I read this from what we've been talking about business success, um, I, I personally went through sort of a, um, a crisis, if you will, uh, last year in 2020 while I was launching. So while I was launching my business, just as I had products that I was sending out to Kickstarter campaign people and was launching a website and building it, I found out um, because I went to a routine checkup that I had uh, metastatic stage four um, uh, terminal incurable uh, prostate cancer that had metastasized to um, all over my body. I mean, it was it was the the bones, the lymph nodes, the blood, um, the prostate was eaten up. I was eaten, being eaten alive, and the doctors were giving me really no there's no, it's incurable and they know that and they just talk really frankly about it, how you're going to die. You need to get your affairs in order and all that stuff. And so I, I wasn't willing to accept that because nobody's willing to accept that. And what I needed to do was I needed to really embark on a new, a new research project. So while I'm trying to build my business and come up with um, a way to successfully sell my product, I also had to become a researcher on cancer. What was the nature of it? And that's where those two books came in. Um, I, I wrote them down on, wrote the titles down on a note that I can't find right now just before I interview, but it was uh, Keto for Cancer and Cancer, a Metabolic, uh, a metabolic Approach to Cancer. And I can't think of the author's names on either of both of them, but they were formative in my understanding cancer, what it was and what I'd be dealing with and how was I going to battle this? Because the standard of care, what doctors tell you um, is they have nothing to do in my stage there. Nothing is successful in, um, in two years, only seven people out of a hundred are still alive. And in five years, everybody's dead. And so I was, so I'm, I'm facing, all right, I had a great Kickstarter launch. I'm embarking on this great company. I've got investors. Now I find out that I'm going to be dead in a year and a half or something like that, which is now hmm, a year and a month, you know, or a year and two months into that. So I'm not dead yet. You look and, very happy. How, well, how did you do uh, metabolic and keto program? Uh, well, those are part of it, but I, I landed on the research of a doctor, uh, not a doctor, but Professor Thomas Seyfried, that's S-C-Y-F-R-I-E-D, mm -hmm. and Dr. Seyfried's a fellow at Boston College and a scientist, a research scientist, and he is, if you were to just Google Thomas Seyfried, you would learn just a ton of information about um cancer and what cancer is and why the world of oncology has it wrong. And so what is it, what is it for the for the lay people listening? Is it a metabolic uh, thing? It is cancer is a metabolic disease. It's mm. not a it's not a genetic disease. When and I'm gonna uh, boy I'm gonna get hate mail from this. 
<laughs> but uh, it's it's really because I'm flying in the face of what oncology and people live and know. I mean, if you're an oncologist, you go to college and you learn this and you spend 40 years in practice. You're not wrong. You're you're a smart doctor. You, you're practicing everything that you're preaching and you're doing it right. But you didn't learn what's right. And I know, who am I to say that sort of thing? All I can say is I'm a cancer survivor right now. I mean, I, I didn't know Thomas Seafried from you. I, from from anybody else down the way, it's why would I, why would I believe what he had to say? And uh, so that started me down this path. You know, first reaching out to him, finding out who I should reach out to and touch. So I approached my cancer care in the same way I tr- approached the business. Exactly yeah. the same. It's if I'm going to win this, I have to understand the process and the problem. Okay, the data, understand the situation. Right. And so, and then I started doing tests and I got data and I tested the data. And, you know, in the end, the end, the end is not written yet. I don't really know. But this is uh, at the time of this recording, it's June. And um, in January of 2021, this January 2021, I had scans and no evidence of cancer. So I went from incurable cancer to... no cancer in less than a year. I mean, I find out that I'm going to die and there's no hope for me to uh, now I'll probably die of old age, but I'm, I really don't know. I don't really have any idea whether or not it's just kind of lurking in the backgrounds. There's no evidence of it. The scans are complete. The, the indicator, the PSA indicator is um, there's no trace of any cancer, any of the antigen associated with it. So I, it, that, all the work that I did, plus um, I'm a very, I'm a deeply religious uh, individual and I, and I believe in prayer and the power of prayer and in God. And I had hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people in churches all across the country praying for me. So I, I really have no idea, honestly, if it was all the hard work that I did or all the hard prayer that I did, but it was a combination of both and, and not just me. And so in the words of St. Augustine, pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on you. That's, that's what I did. And so I, the, the two books I was talking about gave credibility to the notion of cancer is a metabolic disease, not a genetic disease. And so when the first question that you're asked is, who else in your family do you have cancer, has cancer? Uh, who died of what? You know, breast cancer, heart, lung cancer, brain cancer. It doesn't matter. None of that's relevant. And, and I say none of that's relevant, and there will be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people say that I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I get that. I, I don't believe that they're right because the evidence points, um, the research that Thomas Seyfried did, points directly at the fact that all cancer is curable and all you, but it's boy, Simon, we could talk about this for hours, honestly, because uh, there's just, just this topic alone, the topic of Kickstarter, the topic of building a business, hiring people. Oh, and then throw into the mix, you know, having cancer and then not having cancer all at the same time. It's just been a, the last 18 months has just been a huge whirlwind. And, I took the same approach towards that 
as um, as I you know to the cancer solving as I did to building a business. And so far, it appears to be that I'm successful. Gail Orenstein is asking: Did you become religious when you became ill, or were you religious pre-cancer? Um, I've been I've been religious my entire life, but I con uh, converted to the Catholic faith back in 2005 at the same time that now Saint uh, Pope John Paul II was died. So I've been I've been Catholic for. 17 years, 16 years or something like that, and intensely religious and, and intensely faith-loving. So I knew that um, the cancer that I have or had um, was, was God's will for me. And again, now I'm going to get hate mail on this topic as well, because it's, it's not something that Um, people are willing to do every, every I believe firmly that God is entirely in control of what's going on I don't mean driving it like a boat but in, unless he wills it it doesn't happen so he had to have willed that I have cancer and I have no idea if the reason that I have cancer is to be able to had cancer it was to be able to not have cancer to talk on this show and to affect the person who just sent an email in I, I don't I really don't know And so I take every single step. It's, it's really quite miraculous that I'm even here talking to you because if we had scheduled this a year ago, uh, it's not going to happen. Right. And so I can tell an entirely different story now that I had no notion about it. So I could talk about business. I could talk about um, Kickstarter because I learned about Kickstarter. I ran oh the Kickstarter campaign. I didn't mention this was uh, 0.04 in the top 0.04 percentile of successful Kickstarter campaigns. In other words, 10%. I mean, only 20% of Kickstarter campaigns ever even make, and only 1% of them break a hundred thousand dollars. And so, at 0.4% of them, then I'm I'm in rarefied air, and it's not anything that I nothing magic about Bob. Bob Healy's not a master. He just follows the numbers and does what the data says. And I did the same thing when it comes to cancer treatment. It's follow the numbers. And so as far as the religion is concerned, it, from a purely practical standpoint, why wouldn't you be? I mean, when you, if the alternative is when you die, you're just dead, right? I mean, that's just it. That's the end of it. There's no notion of an afterlife. Well, happy you. I mean, that's a that's a great outlook. Absolutely, 100% of us will die. There's not not a question. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And the timing for my dying was sooner than I had anticipated. But not so. Not now. I am so pumped about this, and I could go on for two hours more. And actually, I would like to propose that we have another conversation very soon and about your whole research process about what is cancer, uh, how did you search for the data, what did you find, what surprised you, and, and what might be a different angle that obviously you have found and how it might inspire also the search process of other people. So if you want, let's do that uh, sure. soon. I would love to. And um, I'm so inspired by this, absolutely 
Bob, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your journey, prototyping, crowdfunding, researching your own uh, health and life situation. Beautiful. Uh, th this has been an episode about how to own your own data, your own destiny, and be, be a scientific entrepreneur in, on, on every level. And uh, one, one last question. Where can people hang out with you, read more about your things? Um, so my website's growblazer.com. You, where you're going to find me right now is working diligently to build this company, to hire the right quality people. If you were to just use the search engine, Google and Google the word grill blazer or grill gun, you'll find reviews about the product that I have. My, Uh, my approach towards business is, is to give the customer the, the best satisfaction possible. So if you read the Google reviews, there's, I think at last look, I saw 336. Um, they all talk about how it's a fabulous product and it's a fabulous company in the terms of customer support. So you can find me through Grillblazer. You can email me if you wanted to, you know, if you, if you've got cancer, I've got so many people asking me because of this story, you know, what do they do? I, I'm not a doctor. I don't tell them what to do. I tell them what I did. And um, it's, it becomes a, per, a personal journey, and I'm happy to, to share that because I couldn't. So many people are calling me and saying, uh, what do I do? I, I just wrote it all down so that I can. So it, that would be the, the clip notes for our conversation, Simon, if you wanted to have that um, in, a, yes. in a future interview. Yes, I want to have it. And usually at this time, I ask who should be my next guest. But this question is answered. You are my next guest and Mark <laughs> is my next guest. So yeah. it's clear and we see each other soon. So thank you Sounds so much good. for sharing your wisdom, your journey with us and see you soon. All right. Thanks, Simon. Bye-bye. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one -on -one sprint coach. We double your revenue in 90 days.